episode 137, Pro Wrestler Jean Rougeau. As far as the origins of how you turn heel, as you alluded to there, I, I had seen a quote, I think it was attributed to you uh, on the internet, of where you mentioned that Vince uh, seemed to think that fans were having a harder time getting behind two French-Canadian guys beating up on Americans. I have to say, looking at it through the prism of adolescence, so maybe this is a little fuzzy, but at the time, I don't remember that being the case. It seemed like you guys were fairly popular. I, I didn't seem to recall anything like that, but I don't, I don't remember there being any particular urgency. Well, there was, just, there was just something. There was two, two things possible. The way I looked at it, it was because I felt like we weren't becoming number one stars as baby faces. Uh, but then on the other hand, we didn't have the pen behind us. Uh, the big boss wasn't writing the scripts for us to come in and become the, the, the world champions. And we were middle class wrestlers, a, a great team to put on a card to entertain the people. Uh, my brother and I never left anybody uh, unsatisfied, but uh, we never had that big push. And uh, and I think that's what made a difference. It's uh, I've learned that now as being a promoter for ten years myself. Uh, I have some talent sometimes that's a that, that, that's a, a better talent, but uh, not at the right place at the right time. <laughs> like right. Uh, example, uh, I remember when my brother quit in 1989. Uh, we'd been there for like four years together. And uh, we were just in line for the titles. And uh, there came in from nowhere uh, Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard. And it was like uh, because of a business deal with uh, WCW, or not WCW, but uh, where they'd come from, um, they just came right in front of us. And, and those four years of hard work, uh, it was just like, a, uh, how can I say that? Um, Politics sometimes in wrestling makes things happen mm -hmm. that uh, a lot of guys are uh, they, they, they can't take it anymore. Like they wait for the chance, wait for the chance. And I know personally, to be honest with you, um, as heels, when they turned us heels, we had a lot better opportunity. Uh, thinking of the great matches we had with the Rockers, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty, mm -hmm. and um, and thinking that uh, when we go to the Boston Gardens, there's not a, a hockey team that the NHL hates the most uh, than Boston and Montreal Canadiens. When we'd go to the spectrum of Philadelphia Flyers, it was the same thing. Nassau Coliseum in Long Island, it was the same thing. Uh, the, the Montreal Canadiens are just French frogs. <laughs> it's like, but uh, don't ask me why. Uh, don't know where it originates from, except from the fact that you Americans are so patriotic. Uh, I, I'd say that it was a natural thing. And, and for me to come in, uh, what a great time I had, because for me, Americans are no better than Canadians at all, and not more Quebecers anyway. Uh, and it's always been, I always thought that from the bottom of my heart. Episode 144, actor Curtis Armstrong. The number one thing I'm sure that gets thrown at you over time as far as the roles played over the years, of course, Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. I got to say, my number one thing, frankly, uh, with you, I was the biggest moonlighting mark back in the day. I mean, there are not even words oh, wow, to tell you. Really? So, I mean, you know, you, 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 it's a, the role I always think of is Herb Viola from that show. That's always the number one thing. There, yeah, I've seen you in any number of things also, Curtis, but for me, that's got to be right up there. I mean, that was network when there was only the three networks before cable was much of an impact. Is that kind of on the next tier of things where people associate you? Not as much as you'd think, actually, because, um, <clears throat> you know, it was a short run. There were only about three and a half seasons of that show. 
Japan. It was in the 80s, mm -hmm. and they didn't release it on DVD until a few years ago. And by that time, I think a lot of people, unless they were like you and actually watched it at the time, a lot of people had pretty much forgotten that show. It, it seems to have sort of dropped through the cracks. So, in fact, although I get, I do get it a lot, um, especially since they, they put them out on, on DVD, um, it's not really as, uh, as commonly mentioned as you would think. Episode 152, baseball legend Gaylord Perry. A piece of trivia that I couldn't quite believe when I found it out. Maybe it would be easier for you to believe because the next place you pitched after this was Texas, so you got a chance to see what that was like there. I understand they done the 10-cent beer night without any incident down in Texas there. Is it, is it just a different breed of folks down there where you could ply them with 10-cent beer and not have a riot? <laughs> well, they're used to drinking a lot more. so much hotter down there, and, you know, I think I think today was about 107 or butter down. So you got to have plenty of fluids and uh, there's a lot of Texas beer down there. So, uh, you know, four or five beers don't affect them like it does the people in Cleveland. Episode 136, Entertainment Weekly columnist Dave Carter. It is such a consensus that, uh, again, King's Speech, a fairly heavy favorite. But if it ain't the King's Speech, it'll be the social network. Uh, amazing that you can all but rule out eight of the ten nominees in the category. Oh, absolutely. If, if there's a movie besides the King's Speech that's going to win, it's a social network and absolutely no other. I mean, the fighter has the most outside of outside chances to win. And then the other seven... No way. So I can see by I can see why the bookies are having such a big spread. If that if I'm using the right terminology, even uh, that you would make so much money if 127 Hours or Black Swan or Winter's Bone or Inception actually wins, because there's just no way that's going to happen. Episode 130, BCS Executive Director Bill Hancock. You deal with media types all the time here, so I'll let you guess on this. I'm sure that you're you're going to get it right away. If I was to tell you I had one little wrinkle I'd like to see, what do you think it is? Oh, you'd probably like to see one one more game after the Bulls are played. Plus one, Bill. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I'll tell you what. Now, TCU, again, here's the thing. I thought you struck gold going into last night. Okay, I'm thinking one versus two. This is undisputed. Yeah, TCU ran the table, beat Wisconsin. But I, I expect, you know, these two teams tonight to really – look like what they did during the regular season, and it'll be decisive. You, you kind of have a little harder time than I would have thought going into last night, you know, putting Auburn way the heck ahead of TCU, the way that things shook out. Auburn and Oregon didn't necessarily look uh, representative of the way they played during the regular season. Maybe that was the layoff or anything else like that. But to somebody like me that would say, gee, it would be a great thing. Maybe you have, you know, your semifinal bowls on New Year's Day. You already have the infrastructure in place with the extra game, and it's more or less a week later, so you already have that. That would have been the stumbling block previously. You're not extending the season by doing that. I understand that's not something you're presently an advocate of, but just give me any of your thoughts uh, on the subject, you know, as you've been outlining them over time. Yeah, I'm, I'm not an advocate of it. On the other hand, I'm, I'm absolutely willing to listen uh, to what people think about it. Here's the issue. What if Oregon... Auburn and TCU are still undefeated after the bowl games. Then who who picks? Who decides which two move on? And have you really gained anything from what we have right now? I, I'm not sure about that. Uh, the team number three is really going to be unhappy that they didn't get picked. And, and the other thing about it is a logistical thing, and I think it's really important, and it's that 
say you're able to play the, all the bowl games on January 1, which is problematic, mm-hmm. but say you're able to do it, and the championship game a week later, you're not giving much time for folks to, to fans to buy their airline tickets, make hotel arrangements. Um, and at some point, would fans say, you know what, I don't think I'll go to the bowl game. I think I'll wait to see if we get in the, you know, the championship game. Um, coaches don't have much time to prepare. There's a lot of logistical things that really have to be thought through, and I think the other the other part of it is for me, we call it bracket creep, C R E E P bracket creep. And what it is is every this would not stay at a fourteen tournament. Uh, eventually, Team Three would be so unhappy that they would ask for change, and so this little plus one would turn into an eighteen playoff, and then twelve and sixteen maybe. And the, the reason I'm saying that is, if you think about it, every sports bracket has increased through the years. College basketball certainly has. College baseball, softball, uh, the NFL, NBA, every, every sport, literally every sports bracket has increased. And I think we'd be fooling ourselves if we thought that if we went to a plus one that we could keep it at that size forever. Episode 152, two-time Indianapolis 500 champion Dan Weldon. In terms of the migration of drivers between different circuits, something that I'm curious about with you having won your second 500 this year and the first one having been in 2005 when the uh, the open wheel circuit, actually there, there was two at the time, you had Champ Car going as well, and the field at that time versus what the field was now. What was your perspective on winning it a second time when uh, obviously a couple of these guys have gone to NASCAR and not come back, but by and large, uh, nobody can dispute the strength of the fields 2009, 2010, 2011. That wasn't always the case at every point during the time when there were the two domestic open wheel uh, circuits here. Uh, Did you take any greater sense of accomplishment from the second uh, uh, championship or, or was it roughly about the same? No, I think to be honest, it was it was very similar. What, what you've got to remember is, whenever you're racing in the Indianapolis 500, you've got the, the best of the best teams, and 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 those teams are not going to put pe- people in in those cars that are not talented. So you know, I, you know, when when you consider that, just just, in, just as teammates alone, I had Tony Kanaan, Dario Franchitti, Brian Herder. And then, like you talked about, Sam Hornish. I mean, they, these are incredibly talented race car drivers. So, so I have to say, if you're if you're racing up front, um, it, it doesn't matter what year they they uh, you know. For me, they've all been very very competitive. I would say the depth of the field this year was was perhaps deeper than it's ever been. But um, you know, in, in, in all honesty, that the, the, the top ten to fifteen any year that I've raced in the five hundred, it's been uh, it's been incredibly it's been incredibly tight, incredibly competitive, and you know, it's one of those races where it doesn't it doesn't matter what year you compete if if you don't execute that race perfectly, you're not going to win, and and that's what makes the Indianapolis five hundred so rewarding to you know everybody involved. It is there's so much preparation that goes into it. There's so much hard work. And you know you have to execute everything. Like there's not one thing you can let slip come race day because otherwise you're not going to win. And I love that challenge of it. Um, but you know I just love driving that racetrack. It's a phenomenal racetrack. There's a great amount of history and tradition behind it. 
And, uh, you know, it's just, for me, it's, it's great to be a part of. Episode 133, best-selling Wall Street author William Cohen. When you were on previously, it was, it was you know, maybe, what, eight months after uh, the, the events of September 2008. And you said at the time, and this squared with everything that I had been reading, that we didn't even necessarily know the situation with all of the banks and the institutions involved, to the extent to which some things were still kind of muddy, uh, to which uh, the mortgage uh, securitization maybe still had some of them uh, in, in a bad position that wasn't yet known. I mean, it's about a year and a half from that point on, we're hearing that this is going to be the worst year yet for, for mortgage defaults. Again, from, from my outside perspective, I mean, I just have a churning feeling in my gut. I know that corporate profits have been up a lot over the course of the last two years, but as quickly as it returned to business as usual, which we talked about during your, your present uh, or during your past time on the show here, I just have this gnawing feeling that we still haven't necessarily gotten to the bottom of everything that went wrong in that instance and that there could still be vestiges of that crisis that come back to bite us in the next year or two. Is there anything to that fear, do you think? Well, I, I don't think, you know, a lot of people would like, as we talked about uh, before, would like to uh, quickly have us return to the status quo and act as though as everything, you know, is hunky-dory, that we're, you know, we're back from the brink, you know, we're so much better off now than we were in September and October of 2008. Uh, and I'm not saying that that isn't true to some extent, but I think there are some serious, serious structural problems that still exist, not only in our economy, but, you know, frankly, in the European economies and the world economies. Uh, uh, you know, there's a, there's a serious a sovereign uh, crisis in, in Europe, uh, whether it's in, in, you know, in Ireland, in Greece, in Spain, in Portugal, and potentially Italy. I mean, there are real problems both with the banks, the financial institutions, and the sovereign countries themselves. And we know that there, that there are problems in our own states uh, in terms, as you were mentioning before, in terms of, you know, financial uh, deficits that they cannot overcome. And, and look, at, look at what we've done, you know, at the federal level. I mean, this wonderful tax cut deal that everybody is, you know, jumping up and down and getting so excited about that happened during the lame duck session, you know, has increased the uh, 2011 budget deficit to one and a half trillion dollars. You know, there's a record budget deficit, and, you know, there doesn't seem to be the political will. There's a lot of jawboning about it, but there doesn't seem to be the political will in Congress to do anything to close those deficits. And, and the hope is that we can just continue to finance our deficits with, uh, you know, the Chinese or the Japanese or the Koreans who are kind enough to buy our debt, or the Federal Reserve, which is kind enough to buy our debt. So I think there's, and to say nothing of unemployment and the chronic levels of unemployment, I think there are huge problems. Now, you, you talked about whether, you know, any of the mortgage securities and, and, and people are still, uh, increasing number of people are, are, are losing their homes through foreclosure. Uh, and I think it's a crime that banks aren't willing to negotiate with individual homeowners uh, a new uh, a, a mortgage for their, their homes, uh, reduced mortgage with reduced rates to get those uh, payments back on track where it can be a performing loan. I mean, why they do it for GM and Chrysler but don't do it for individual homeowners it, it, you know, is beyond me. Uh, but I think that basically at the moment what's going on at the bank level is that the banks took such big write-downs on the value of these securities that part of the reason they're showing great profits in the last few quarters is because they're reversing those losses, and, and as the value of these securities increases, they're taking some of those gains into their balance sheets, uh, into their P&L. And, and I think that, you know, 
It's accounting gimmickry. I think there is a fundamental, you know, proper shift going on now towards less risk-taking on Wall Street than there had been and becoming more like utilities. I mean, once upon a time, Wall Street provided a very, very valuable service for corporate America, which was raising capital anywhere in the world whenever they wanted it, 24 by 7, you know, providing capital to these companies so they could grow, they could build new plant equipment, they could hire more workers, uh, uh, so they could do all the things that we would like them to do now, but don't do, really doesn't seem that they do anymore. Now, it seems that Wall Street, by and large, you know, maybe some of this will, will be stopped to some extent, but had become a huge casino, as you were saying before. And, and, and that's not very productive. That, that's, and again, it gets back to this bonus culture where the incentive was and remains on Wall Street to take big risks with other people's money. Anytime you put humans in a situation where they're being rewarded for taking big risks without any accountability, it doesn't take a genius to realize that that's exactly what they're going to do. Episode 140, longtime sports executive Harvey Schiller. With some of the names that you mentioned, uh, not least of which uh, Ted Turner, it does raise the question, uh, Dr. Schiller, for somebody like you who's worked for and with so many other prominent executives in your time in terms of working for, whether it be Ted Turner, George Steinbrenner, working with Billy Payne, who of course has moved on to uh, the Augusta National since running the Olympic Committee and, and working above a very uh, famous uh, executive uh, in his own right, and uh, Eric Bischoff. Are there any commonalities among these guys? I mean, they all seem to be very driven, very type A personalities. They're all very charismatic types. Are there any things about any of these guys, either individually or collectively, that jump out at you when I mention those names? Well, I think that uh, in general terms, they are uncommon individuals. Uh, I think that's a term that I would use in that each one approached problems in a different kind of way. Uh, all of them, uh, each and every one of them, expected that things would be done in the best way. And I mean, it didn't matter whether it was the food being served or what was being done on the broadcast or the music that was played or the talent that you had. So I think that expectation uh, was the one generality that was shared by all of them. Uh, each one had a different knowledge base. You know, Ted came out of the sign industry. He had built a superstation. Uh, George had come out of a family out of the shipping business, but at the same time uh, had this love for athletics in a very different kind of way. Uh, Eric is a unique individual in that he's <clears throat> he was both a talent and uh, a producer and a director, which, you know, is, operates at a very, very different level. When you put them all together and you throw in people like General LeMay, who commanded SAC, that I had the opportunity to work under at a distance, and so forth, um, I think each one of them brings something different to the table. I think that was the beauty of getting to work with all of them. Uh, each one, you know, each one, had, as we all do, me and everyone else had some failings that you worked around. Um, the one thing that, that each one of them expected from me was... I have something that's of value. I want you to make it better. Don't hurt it. So it, whether it was the Yankees or the Nets or whether it was the Devils or whether it was uh, the Southeastern Conference schools or whether it was uh, all of the assets that Turner Broadcasting had, uh, you know, from being the president of the hockey team to working with the Braves and the Hawks, you know, the expectation was that you're going to make it better, but you're never going to be in a position to do anything to harm that church and uh, element.
That's very, very interesting to hear about all the different uh, perspectives there. I, I, I dare say, uh, Dr. Shore, not to tell you your business, but it seems to me there's there's a pretty good management book in that for you. You've been privileged to work with so many of these guys. I didn't even know that General LeMay was among them, but uh, my, my goodness, you've got something there if you want to go for it. <laughs> Well, I've been asked several times, you know, the problem is, is if, as you start to delve into it, what people are interested in, it becomes very personal, and you still had, uh, although some have passed away, but you still have personal relationships, and uh, you, you, you know, you honor that because uh, they respect that in you, so you have to be careful with sure. that. The idea of doing it is to, as a learning thing is important, but to do it just to make money is not worth it. Episode 147, actor Matthew Modine. Let me let you characterize it. I, I saw the trailer. It was a very kind of whimsical one here. You're clearly trying to make some points, so why don't you try to set it up for us? Well, it's, a, it's a very difficult film to, to describe. Obviously, I've, I've given it a very provocative title, Jesus Was a Commie, um, but I, I'm not religious. Um, I think that Jesus was an extraordinary uh, human being, and you know, don't think I'm being blasphemous or... or or, or wanting to cause pain. I mean, that's just my opinion. Um, I, but I do think he was an extraordinary teacher and, and, a, and a person. You know, I mean, I can I could compare him to other people over over the over the history of of people who have changed the way we behave and 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 altered our consciousness, uh, pushed us a little bit to the left. Um, and if you look at the things that Jesus is supposed to have said and the things that he's supposed to have done. Uh, you know, by definition of what communism means, in the in the in the best sense, in the utopian sense, uh, then by definition, I, I think that you could say that he was he was communist. Of course, communism didn't the, the concept, the word didn't exist when when Jesus was walking the earth. But the, the film, in in the bigger sense, is addresses the, the tremendous challenges we face as human beings today. You know, the environmental disasters that, that are happening all over the world, seemingly simultaneously right now, from Japan to the Midwest to, the, to, the, to, to, to our friends in the South here that are experiencing all this tremendous flooding. Um, the Gulf, you know, with the oil spills. I mean, we, we face tremendous environmental challenges right now. And what the film ultimately is saying is that these challenges are, are, are things that we have to address and face as human beings, that we can't look to a savior to, to save us from the problems that we face. It's up to us. It's up to each one of us as individuals to take steps. And, and as I say in the film, the final lines of the film is, well, if you do those kinds of things as well as Jesus did, uh, you divide time. That, that this is a, a person who altered the consciousness of human beings on this planet, and there's a before him and a after him. Um, the only other person I know who thought that he could divide time was Frederick Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. You know, he thought that there would be before Nietzsche and after Nietzsche, or Nietzsche, however you want to pronounce his name. But obviously he didn't succeed in doing it, you know. It's a very provocative film, and I'm very, very proud of it. Episode 150, comedian Gilbert Gottfried. Gilbert really lived up to the expectation. Thank you so much for being our keynote guest on our 150th episode tonight. Oh, thank you. And go get rubber balls and liquor. Absolutely. Go get the book, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on the FDH Lounge, our dignitaries always speak their minds, and so do our guests. Just listen to pro wrestling legend Jim Cornette, Liz Clayman, and Bob Barker. 
Next time you're passing through town, the FDH Lounge, sir, is treating you to that so you can write a restaurant review of Goodman's. If I come to Cleveland, I get corned beef. I'll yeah. be there with bells on. Uh, you know, I had, as I said, a wonderful time at CNBC, but I knew it was time for me to leave because, I, you know, I'd landed Buffett, I'd landed Bill Gates. I felt like I'd done everything I could do, and every time I'd pitch a small business story, they'd say, you can't trade it. You can't trade on it. Uh, it's not publicly traded. And, and I kind of thought that was a little myopic. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll go to Animal Planet or something, you know. <laughs> hey, heck, I'll go to Al Jazeera. I'll be the first Jew on Al Jazeera. That's what I was ready for. <laughs> well, I tell you, you're a very discerning fellow. The FDH Lounge, the great American radio show on Internet TV, where nothing is off topic.